Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 117th show. Today's guest is Michael Solomon, author of Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy. Michael, welcome. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. Your book was awesome. And um, definitely anybody who's building a company should definitely be reading this book. So let's start off with you telling us about your background. Sure. So I'll try and do the relatively short version. Um, born and raised in Manhattan in New York City, uh, went to college here. Uh, and then when I got out of school, I had the, this incredible opportunity to go on the road with Bruce Springsteen, um, which was a, an incredible way to start to start a career. And I toured uh, most of the world with him and had this amazing experience. Got out of that and went to Sony Music, which happened to be his record label, worked there for about three years and then left and began my my full-blown entrepreneurial journey that I would I, I always knew I would take, um, starting an artist management company called Brickwall Management. That company is 27 years old, alive and well. We've managed people like Vanessa Carlton and John Mayer and Citizen Cope over the years. It, it's been a quite a, an enjoyable ride. Uh, when the music industry got disrupted, we started to wonder what we were going to do because it was looking like that industry was in a free fall. And we thought, long and hard about what are the other opportunities for people with our skills. Ultimately, we concluded that the best pivot we could make or the best transition we could make was representing very high level people, very high level, uh, high level talent in the technology industry as opposed to the entertainment industry. Um, and so 10X Management was born as a talent agency for very high level freelance tech professionals. Since then, we've added another service where we help very high level non-freelance tech professionals negotiate their compensation packages. So we're not finding them jobs. They're just coming to us with offers and getting some guidance on negotiating. So that's the the very big overarching picture of my career. In addition to the three companies that you've just heard about, um, there's also three nonprofits that I've started, uh, but we'll save that for another discussion. Uh, Well, if you want to quickly tell us those three nonprofits, just in case people want to support them. Sure. The first one is the Kristen Ann Carr Fund, which raises money for research and treatment for sarcoma, which is a rare cancer. The second one is Musicians on Call, which is a national organization. It's actually the largest organization in the U.S. and probably the world that delivers music to the bedsides of patients in healthcare settings. Um, And then the most recent one is called the We Are All Music Foundation, which is modeled after the Robin Hood Foundation that raises money out of Wall Street and the corporate world to give to best in class music or best-in-class nonprofits using music to improve lives through healthcare and education. Awesome. And so I can't let you go. And before I get into the book, you got to tell us what it was like to be on tour with Bruce Springsteen. You said for three years? Yes. Uh, on and off for, for probably more like five. Or what's that like? Um, it, it was really an incredible experience. I mean, we talk a, a fair amount about Bruce in the book because he was the first 10Xer that I observed. 
and we can get into what that that term means. But this is somebody who's so far above their their peers or their competitors at what they do, um, and not just at their skill. It's not just that Bruce is a great guitar player. It's that he's a great guitar player and a songwriter and a performer and a manager of human beings and a selector of the people to work with and a creator of culture and a creator of an environment for where people want to work. And all of those things are what makes someone 10X. So he was sort of the first one. But being being 19 years old, staying at literally the best hotels in the world, um, flying privately and getting to see the world was pretty magical. I, I, and getting paid well on top of it was, you know, it was too good to be true. Uh, one, what surprised you about that lifestyle? Like, was there anything that really surprised you that you thought would be different or anything like that? And because now that I have you here and so many people were intrigued by that world, be good to know. I think one of the things that becomes very compelling as you're touring around the world, I think it, we were roughly a group of 60 people. It's really you against the world. And there's a line in a Bon Jovi song that says, like, I've seen a million faces and I've rocked them all. And you definitely have this feeling of you and this close group of people are out like navigating the different cultures of the places you are and the different customs and the different currencies and phone extensions and all of these things. But you as a group are together, working together to also do, you know, in most industries, if you said, we want to do a concert for, you know, 50,000 people tomorrow in a city, it would be like, You're, what are you crazy? That can't be done. And th these, you know, these tours put these things up and take them down multiple times a week. And it's, it's an impressive operation. Wow. I mean, it, it sounds like uh, an incredible dream. How did you end up working for him? Uh, the woman, the Kristen Ann Carr Fund, which I mentioned is one of the nonprofits, is named after one of his co-managers, Barbara Carr's daughter. And that young woman was my girlfriend at the time for four years before um, losing that battle. And, and what was the day-to-day -day you did for him on that um, they actually kept moving me around. I don't think it was because I was failing in different roles. I think it was because I was competent enough to be a utility player. So I did everything from hotel advance, which is going to make sure that everything is, is, you know, flying ahead, making sure the hotels and all of the rooms for all of the people are, are where they're supposed to be. And as expected, um, I did merchandise where it was, you know, working with the, the merch sellers at the venue and counting in all the merch at the beginning of the night and then counting out and taking the cash at the end of the night. Uh, I did label relations for Sony Music and for press of organizing the events before and after the show. So I, I kind of got moved around to all different tasks. And eventually I also did, did VIP ticketing. Is there anything that people don't know about Bruce Springsteen that would make them really even happier to know more about Bruce Springsteen? He's a pretty solid human. There's not there's not a whole lot of of what whatever you think your impression of is of him. There's not a lot of surprises underneath that. I have to say it's pretty amazing. He's you know, there's no question that he knows who he is in the world. There's not there's no false modesty, but there's a regular person who's living a great life and who's very grateful for all the things that he's hard. He's, he's done and is also very aware of how hard he worked. You know, he this was not somebody and, and and I should say and works you know this is a man who Tony Robbins says something about do your job like it's your business um because that is how you will perform and either elevate or eventually go have your own business and 
Bruce does everything he does like it's his business, and it is. Um, but he, you know, every everything he does is done with real commitment. I have a, a friend of mine from my Indian princess group, a dads and daughters kind of thing, and he was the lead singer of Cinderella, uh, which was a very successful heavy metal group. And he said, "You." cannot believe what kind of shape we have to get into. It's like training for a 15 round fight back in the day when they had 15 round fights before you went on tour. He said, you can't make it without being in great shape. Bruce is 72 years old and he's still doing three and a half to four hour shows that are like marathon level. I mean, he'll, he'll lose 10 pounds of water weight on stage in a night. Wow. Wow. Well, let's start now with your book. So why did you write this book and, and why this particular title? So the, the, the reason we wrote the book is, as you just heard, sort of I have this background of managing um, entertainment talent. So we, we started out with musicians and then we went to music writers and music producers and then we eventually went to directors and then we even went to entrepreneurs. And then we started this tech talent agency and we got to see this whole other group of talent that had never even really been thought of as talent in that way. And what we, what we all of a sudden woke up one day and realized is we have a through line that maybe nobody else or very few people in the world has ever seen of this many sides of talent and and what do they have in common and what don't they have in common. And that was really where we really, we thought, Oh, we actually have some insight to share with people because this is what the top performers, what they, what they want across industries. And that was sort of the impetus for writing the book. The other thing that was going on is we started the book before COVID was even an idea. And part of what we wanted to help educate the world and and business leaders about was everybody understood there was this shift to freelance, but they hadn't understood that their companies were really woefully equipped to engage in that. And so we would have customers who would say to us, we need a person who does Ruby on Rails in San, in, in San Jose. And it was like, okay, I can find you the best person I have in San Jose, or I can find you the best person I have who's not in San Jose, but is going to do just as good work or better work remotely. And of course, that problem got solved instantly by COVID, but it wasn't just remote work. It was also the procurement process. Lots of companies have you know absurd payment terms for individual contractors, that just don't make sense. You know, I, I love having the conversation when somebody says, we have 60 day net payment terms. And I'm like, oh, do you have to wait 60 days for your paycheck? I'm with you 100%, 100% when I hear that, because I've done them, you know, for writing business plans for large corporations. Well, and when you factor in that the technology, like it used to take a long time to process a payment. Like there used to have to be a lot of manual steps. But in the world that we're living in, there isn't any reason. There's no mailing time. There's not, you know, like there's no. So, yeah, I mean, we had one company at one point that required us to FedEx invoices to Holland where they were received and then sent to somewhere in Africa where they were processed. And again, like, couldn't we? And it was this happened to be a tech company. I said, couldn't we email the invoices? (laughs) Like, uh, you know, like, is there a reason it has to go by FedEx? (laughs) You were you were screwing up their processes, that's for sure, by even asking that. Yes. My favorite story that I'm I'm pretty sure we put in the book is a guy who was hired, who was a consultant like you, was hired by a large company to help them become more agile and help them figure out how to better work <laughs> with freelancers. And he literally starts his negotiation for his engagement 
and they were talking about nine, 90-day payment terms. And he's like, well, we can start the engagement right now because I'm not <laughs> doing it on that basis and nobody else is either. So let's start here. Um, he did get it resolved. You did talk about that in the book and you had some good stories in the book about that crazy stuff when they're, like you said, you know, if uh, if they made it the law that with however long it takes you to pay uh, your vendors is the average number of days you have to pay your own employees, people would be paying much faster. Yep, exactly. So how did COVID change recruiting and employee acquisition? I mean, because it's a whole different ball game now, especially with the 21 to 35 year olds. Yeah. And this is, I'm really glad that we're talking about this because you know, you write these books that have to do with predictions and you know that you're going to get some stuff wrong and hopefully get more, more than that. Right. And this is where we were way ahead of our time and it happened faster than we thought it was going to, but we were, we were actually spot on with the concept, which is that people, and we, we, we categorize these into a couple groups, 10 Xers, top performers, and also millennials and Gen Z's don't want the same things that workers wanted in the prior generations. They want choices. They want to be thinking about their career. They want work-life balance. They want meaning. I'm not, this is not, you know, brand new stuff that no one's ever heard before. But what happened with the great resignation was all of a sudden you saw people who were putting aside those feelings. Now they're front and center. Now, when we talk to somebody who's looking for a job, we do a we have a tool called a lifestyle calculator that we we do as part of 10x Ascend, where someone fills out a uh, a, a little puzzle of of their preferences in, in terms of what goes into a job package. So that might include salary, equity. You know, do I have an office? Can I work remotely? Do I have flex time? How much vacation do I have? All all of those kinds of things, and. What you see and what we've seen is a shift moving from emphasis because they get 100 points to use on salary and equity as as the most important things to work-life balance becomes more important. Um, I actually just started a, a negotiation conversation with someone this week where they they wrote and they said, I you know I care about the salary and equity, but I really care about work-life balance. So what we're seeing now is, and and for tech talent, this is especially true. A very competitive landscape. I suspect the Fed will will ease that a little bit as they continue to raise interest rates, but a very competitive talent landscape, especially for tech talent. And you have this new variable, which is not just that I'm going to pay enough to get the people I want. You need to create a culture and an environment where you're checking off boxes besides the compensation boxes. And that's, I think, the biggest change that we've seen. The, I was at the Non-Fungible Tokens International Conference this past week in New York. And every CEO was talking about this, that uh, no longer they're hiring people literally all over the globe. They're all working uh, from home. They're hiring even Americans who decide I'm going to go live in Lisbon. And my daughter has a global marketing practice uh, with client, literally clients all over the world. And she said, work-life balance is number one and the money is number two. And she makes great money. But she said, I'm not giving up my work-life balance to work 100 hours a week. Just not happening. And, you know, I spoke to somebody yesterday at a crypto bank who was working 90, 100 hours a week. He has young kids and he's ready to start thinking about other opportunities because it's just, you know, part of what happens also, I think there's a little bit of a, of a shift going on is 
as people start to realize they have enough wealth, they have enough to get by, they want to optimize for other things. So, you know, I've come to realize um, I'm not like a wildly successful person, although I, I, I'm more than comfortable, that money is no longer my most limited resource. Time is a much more limited resource. And as people, and I think the pandemic was very effective is at getting people to sort of have that existential moment of, wait, I have one life to live. I could die. What am I doing? And I think that that's where leaders need to be able to better present the why of their company. So my company, we help people live their best careers. We help them optimize their, their life to live their best. And for me, that's a very rewarding way to spend my days. I help other people get, you know, not get exploited and get the best deals that they can get. And that's rewarding for me. When I hire people, I try and find people who are going to connect with that because if it's if they if they just see it as like oh I'm just a you know an agent and this is just a transactional thing and I you know they're not going to be connected to it and if you have employees that aren't connected to the work they're doing they're not going to be around that long. Do you think this is a good thing? This whole change because I'm wondering about being able to develop corporate cultures and everything. I think it is. I I think that. If what this is, is the beginning of, and, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a proud capitalist, but if this is the beginning of a shift away from money being the focus of everything, and this is the first place we're seeing it, and this is a new generation um, and a new class of people that are starting to say, wait, 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 let's not measure everything by dollars. That's not the only measure. I think this is a hugely positive change. I mean, imagine when people are making the choice about where to work because of the, you know, the value that they provide in making the world a better place versus just the value they put in their pockets. I, I think also the cost of everything is so sky high. You know, my daughter lives, uh, I have both daughters living in LA. When my daughter shows me that not even mediocre house is going for $1.2 million, it's just obscene. And even now around the country, because people can move, inexpensive places like Wyoming and Montana and South and North Dakota have become expensive places. Like their price of real estate is no different. Louisville, um, same thing. I mean, the prices are going up because people think, well, that's a less expensive market to move to. I'll move to that market. And now all of a sudden, lots of people are moving to it and just raises the price of everything. So it's, um, it's an interesting time we're living in for sure. I, I sort of hope that that's going to lead to prices coming down in in the major markets, but so far it hasn't. So far they've just gone up everywhere, and I know we're dealing with you know inflation and and a bunch of macroeconomic factors. But you got to figure at some point there's going to be some place that's going to have the benefit of people moving away from there. Well, I think some people are overcommitted financially, and hence that's what's going to happen, kind of like it was in two thousand eight when the market, uh, when the real estate prices drop there. So I'm sure that's bound to happen. You write a 10Xer has a high IQ and a, and a high emotional IQ. What about those of us that only have one or neither? Are we, are, are we doomed to mediocrity? Um, no, because I think that unless you have something that we call the sabotage impulse, you can continue to move toward 10X. It doesn't mean you're starting there. Some people really do, you know, just they are that way. Um, but part of the reason that we wrote the book was to help people like I don't consider myself a 10 Xer, to help people who are 
somewhere on that X scale, that management con manageability continuum and moving them in the right direction. The place where it really becomes doomed is if you are somebody who, what we describe as the, as the sabotage impulse, where you are unwilling to take responsibility for your mistakes and own them in a positive way. You are somebody who ducks and covers and blame throws um, the reasons for the problems to everybody else. It's pretty hard for to take somebody like that and move them in the right direction, partially because they're going to crush your culture. Everybody's going to be distrustful around them and, and self-protective. And, and it's, it's a very toxic kind of person. But much more importantly, if, if you've got a human being who's saying, none of this is my responsibility, it's everybody else's fault. Well, then they're telling you right up, right up front, like, I'm not going to improve because I don't have anything to improve. So that's, that's really where you run into the problem. The rest of us, as long as we have some humility and some eagerness for feedback and eagerness for learning from our failings, or as we call them, learns, it's no problem. I better send this book to Donald Trump. Um, your book's also a bit scary that um, that good will be replaced by algorithms. So what, what's going to happen to hard workers that aren't the MIT Ivy League talents? Um, in the macro, this is the this is probably as terrifying to me as climate change is. I do see a future, and it's not that far. Um, and actually. This is how Andrew Yang and I got to know each other was talking about this, where tons and tons of jobs are going to be eliminated by technology. And this is in this decade, this is coming. We've already seen it. A lot of our economic woes were started by this. Um, a lot of our political woes, depending on your perspective, are, are correlated to this. And it's going to be a massive existential problem. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the, it's very important to continue to improve yourself, to continue to stay current, to continue to look for the opportunities and to continue to work on the EQ side. Machines are going to be able to do a lot of our, of our skilled work. They're not so good at being human yet. So make sure that you're keeping on top of those human skills. But even accountants and lawyers are finding that uh, these machines are now taking their place in terms of reading contracts, you know checking all the numbers and the spreadsheets, all these things. And so they're reducing the, the need for some of these folks. And some folks um, may be CPAs, but they're only good at, um, you know, the easy, kind of the easy stuff uh, that the machines can actually do. And it seems to me maybe the people at the top creating these things that are eliminating, especially blue collar jobs, need to be thinking about, how are the, where, how those people are going to be absorbed or you're going to have revolution. Yeah. We actually built a website about this just to focus on the topic called the day after labor, um, And basically what we're, what we're getting at is there's two problems, right? You've got, you've got the existential problem. How do you keep people out of poverty when there's, there's no need for their work. But even if you, you know, if Andrew's version of a universal basic income or some other mechanism solves that problem, you have the second problem of what do people do with their time, talent, and energy when they're no longer working a full-time job? Do we all become artists? Do we, do we, do we, I mean, Andrew's vision of this has an, you know, sort of a, 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 a social fabric to society where you're given rewards for helping other human beings. I mean, that's, I, I love that idea. I don't know that we're anywhere near being able to do something like that. But when you look forward, you've got a really big set of problems two very specifically specific huge problems 
that just have to get worked out. And unfortunately, I don't think that our government on either side is really focused on this as a as a as an existential problem the way I see it is. For sure. Uh, can you please describe in general, uh, how does a leader identify a 10Xer and, and what are their traits? So this is, we're working almost the flip side of this sabotage impulse. What's, what makes somebody a 10Xer is they love feedback. They love learning. They're lifelong learners. They're always learning new things. Um, they're really interested in working with other smart people with diverse ideas. Um, you know, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably not a 10Xer. A 10Xer, 10Xer is, the, is usually the smartest person in the room, but doesn't think that and doesn't act that way. Um, and they're, they're very focused on a continuous cycle of improvement and optimization. So whatever it is they're working on, they're always looking for better ways to do it. And that's sort of what makes somebody, and I'm going to use this word, not in the breaking in in way, but what a hacker is, like in the in the world of software engineers, that word gets used very differently. It's not a criminal who breaks into things. It's someone who problem solves. And the the, the number one uh, trait that I think of as a 10X are people who like hard and challenging problems. Um, they want to work hard. They want to figure out how to get through it. And then because they're open to the feedback and they're, and they're willing and interested, they're constantly improving because that's part of the continuous integration cycle. What does a 10Xer look like in other roles of the business, like marketing, sales, and operations? What are leaders looking for when trying to find these people? Uh, are they workaholics? No, just the opposite. They're people who know how to set limits. They're people who work hard, but are able to look around their team and customize their management to achieve their collective goals. So in some instances, with certain kinds of people, they need to micromanage. With most 10Xers, you don't want to micromanage. It's the opposite of what you want to do. You want to give them space, give them a clear outcome, check in as much as you need to along the way, but let them let them go do their thing. So you're adapting the great the great 10X non-technical talent are adapting their management style and their ability to attract and retain a team based on the needs of that team, which is never the same from person to person. Um, they're understanding what is this person's career and what is their vision and how am I tying that together with my team and what we need to do? And if there's really misalignment, a real 10X manager is able to recognize this isn't the right job for you and we have to move you along because you've outgrown it or because you're not succeeding at it. And we want to get you into something that's going to succeed here or elsewhere. So how's the leader of organizations roles changing? What skills do they need? I mean, I think today's leaders got to be thinking they're not being served anymore. They're the people doing the serving to the employees. They're like the concierge for the employees and making sure that they fulfill themselves personally and professionally. So what, what are the leaders' roles uh, in these changing times and what skills are they going to need to manage this? I think that what you brought up earlier about the EQ is really where we're where we're headed where that's that's actually the most important thing it sounded like this was part of what was being talked about at that nft conference you just described is leaders need to th be thinking much more about people than they ever did before um, and that's really the fundamental change is you used to be able to say i want that my desk at three o'clock and that was the that was the order like those days are gone 
Like that's not how you treat people. That's not, you can still have deadlines. You can hold people accountable, but the way in which you're going to engage with people is a very different and much more per permission-based approach. Smart goals as a, for instance, is, you know, smart goals were something that didn't used to exist because you didn't need the employee. Are you familiar with this term? Is this a commonly understood term? Go ahead and explain it to the audience. Yeah, I've heard them before. Um, SMART goals are, let me just pull up the exact acronym because there's two different um, versions and I want to make sure I give the one that I, I, I like um, the, the, most, the most, but it's, it's essentially um, what, you're, what you're aiming for is a, 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 a goal that is specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. Um, and the achievable is basically sometimes that A is also used as agreeable. So this is where you're checking in with your team to say, I know I have this goal of having it, you know, tomorrow at four o'clock, but can you do that? And rather than, rather than just sort of being dictatorial, you have to be much more collaborative, which by the way, was always the smart way to do it. So I, that makes perfect sense to me. So you live it yourself just like that. Oh, apps and have just because I, I approach management as a human being, not as a, not it's. Of course, there's a performance that goes with it, but what am I managing? I'm not managing a, a ones and zeros. I'm managing human beings. And human you know, beings it's funny you're seeing that well. you're seeing that in all walks of life, right? Like on um, professional sports, the Bobby Knight version of uh, managing talent no longer exists. Anybody who manages like that doesn't last long. No, and and we're just you, you can't do that anymore. Like it just. It's not gonna. It's it's not gonna work. Um, and if they sense that, they're not even gonna get in the door. I mean, the average person I'm helping negotiate these are senior software engineers has four job offers, four, and these are like auctions that are getting like they're just coming at them with more and more stuff. So these are not people who are just sort of like, oh, I guess I gotta accept that. They're they're customizing and creating it exactly as as they should. And by the way. Why shouldn't they? We have personalized playlists, right? You go to Spotify, it recommends things for you. Netflix does the same thing. Every Amazon suggests what you're going to want based on your preferences. Everything is being customized to you. You have personalized medicine at this point where it's like really being created around you. Your job offer, how you're going to spend all of your waking hours to make money, that should be cookie cutter. It never made sense. That's part of the reason we created the lifestyle calculator so we can say to a potential employer, Look, I know you're going to make an offer, but these are the things that are important to this to this person. So make the offer in a way that's that's and and everybody thinks this is going to cost the company more money. I've seen so many times where the company saved money because they gave somebody uh, a, a flexible option that they wanted. Yeah, and you talk about in that book where they didn't want to give this guy a flexible option, but they ended up doing it anyway because he was like one of the best people on the planet at doing what he was doing. Exactly. And, and I have more examples of people where they didn't give them the option and they lost out and, and, and for no, and for no good reason. Like you need to see the man's or the woman's fingers typing the keyboard. Like you founder, you don't even know what the code is that he's writing. What did you need to see him sitting there doing it or her? It's funny back in 96, I was running a multimedia company. That's what they were called back then website CD-ROMs. And so I took over this company and I told people, for those of you who want to work from home, you can work from home. And the founder was like, are you out of your mind? I said, no. I said, you're going to see an increase uh, by 30% because I had been working from home for years, even though I was running other organizations that work from home two or three days a week. 
And uh, it turned out to be a great thing. And in fact, it's so good that we were inundated with resumes from their friends who wanted to come to work at an organization that allowed them to work from home if they want to. This is you know 1996. Well, and that was at the time such an incredible benefit to be able to offer people. You might have been able to pay somebody 20% lower for that perk. Yeah, we didn't have to raise people. And the other thing I did was I included all their healthcare benefits. So if you did that, they didn't bother even comparing that the fact that they were paying for those healthcare benefits, you know, instead of getting 10% more, we just put that toward giving them 100% of the healthcare um, benefits. That's lovely. Yeah, so they were just happy about that. Questions from the audience. The first one is, how important is having a defined purpose for being a 10Xer? Um, this is less from the book and more from my general philosophy. I think that having a defined purpose is crucial for every human being. I think that if you're, if you can't sort of speak to your personal why of what you're, the way you're living your life, um, I think that's probably the biggest thing that leads to regret. And, you know, personally speaking, one of the reasons that I sort of feel really good about the life and lifestyle that I'm living is it's very intentional. I am very clear on what matters to me, on what I want to work toward, on my goals. And I certainly think 10Xers, like if you're asking about 10Xers, that is something that they are very focused on. Rowing fast, if you don't know where you're going, is not very useful because you could be going in circles. You have to know where you're going at all times. And anybody who's a 10Xer does. Uh, next question from the audience. I think people that have flexibility in their work environments will perform so much Better, I guess that's more of a, a statement. And I think you found that to be a case. I certainly found it in every organization I've run that that's the case as well. I think that there are certain things that lend themselves to remote work and there are certain things that lend themselves to a group setting for sure. I don't think that's a one size fits all, but for certain kinds of work, and this is, I think, the point that Linda was probably making, it is crucial. So if you're doing um, work that requires a flow state or being in the zone, these are terms that psychology's brought our way, positive psychology in particular. So software engineering as a, as a, as a good example or design or even writers, you get into a state where you're operating at above 100% of your normal operations when you're given the right environment. And when you're given the wrong environment, you get knocked out of that state that it takes it can take hours to get into. So I've had software engineers saying, I can work 3X my normal speed once I get into the zone. And then somebody taps them on the shoulder and it takes them another hour to get back to that point. So there is real value in, in contemplating the work environment for the kind of work that needs to be done. I think one of the biggest benefits of people working from home, and a lot, I hear this all the time, is thank God I don't have to go to so many meetings. Because most people, I think the biggest frustration of working somewhere is feeling at the end of the day, they've accomplished nothing. And now they've got to do all the work they should have been doing during the day. Now they've got to uh, do it till 12, one o'clock in the morning because they weren't able to get done what they really needed to get done. Yeah, and and I think that the question there, and I, I think Elon Musk is known for having a policy about this, is do all those people need to be in all those meetings all the time, especially with all of the tools that we have for tracking projects and keeping things on, you know, sort of on task. 
I, I think that probably not. And I think that's something that most companies hopefully looked at during the pandemic. And the other thing that I'll say, because this is, this is new, um, is not every meeting needs to be a video meeting. We used to have lots of phone calls um, and that was fine. But I also, I, I, I do run into a lot of executives who don't think about how to create what they need in their, in their work space and their work-life balance. Like you, you should go to your boss. If you're in, if you're in meetings 89% of the time and you have work that requires 50% of your time, you're, you've got a problem there and you, you, you're not, you shouldn't be on your own to solve it. Like you have to go and talk to the, your, the person who's, who's leading you to say, how do we work this out so that we can have the results that we want without, um, without, without, you know, sort of my having to work 12 hours a day. Uh, do different industries require different type of 10X management approaches and styles? Like you were saying before, kind of a one size doesn't fit all, but, you know, in terms of a management approach and style, is it same for biotechnology as it is for a technology company as it is for a retail store? I think for the most part, when you're dealing with technologists, they need similar things, regardless of whether they're, you know, doing life science work or whether they're software engineering. I think that there, there's a lot of common ground there, but I think what we're talking about overall as a management shift is a, is very much about a customized management style so that each person is getting what they need to perform the best. Um, you know, it's, it, it, when you think about it, it's, and you take your car in to get repaired, like they put parts in it that go with your car, right? They're not just like car parts that go in every car. And I think the way that one manages an employee needs to be bespoke to that particular employee. The last thing I'll say on this is there are industries where the cultures just really, really don't go well together. So to use an example, I've watched a bunch of crypto people end up at banks, at crypto banks. And the banking people with the, the technology people are really just coming from completely different places. And as it relates to culture, and I'm gonna use these terms, I don't mean them politically at all. You've gotta make sure that there's some alignment between being conservative and being progressive. So a technologist is gonna be progressive. They're going to want a 10 xer They're going to want to constantly be improving things and changing things and making it better and always looking for the better way to do it. The conservative person is trying to conserve what was. It works this way. We don't want to change it that much. We're scared. We, you know, there's risk, there's business risk, there's legal risk, whatever it is. You've got two really, really at odds cultures there. And if you're not working to solve that, you're, you're going to have a, a really big problem. You write that much of what Silicon Valley does in terms of the perks it gives employees are data-driven, such as NapPod. I, I didn't know that. Well, what are some of the most significant data that's changed? So one of the things that I love, and this goes right back to what I was talking about, is when you had hackers start to be the leaders of companies, so we can talk about Google, like you had two engineers who ran that company, they started to look at people a little bit like technology. People need to be optimized. So they said, what, what, what are the things that keeps our people from doing their best work? Oh, they're tired. Humans don't operate well when they're tired, kind of like cars don't operate well when they don't have oil in them. So there's, there's sort of these very basic ideas and they're like, all right, well, if we put nap pods in, 
the, the conventional wisdom was, well, then people are going to be sleeping, not working. Their approach was, I'd rather have somebody sleep for an hour and then do better work. So if you take that out and you play it out to, if we put ping pong tables in the office, that keeps people here, they get their minds off of their work, shift their focus, and then they do better work when they go back. And it keeps them here more often. Or if we give them free lunch or free dry cleaning, all of these things were not geared just to be kind. They were geared to optimize humans, which makes perfect sense and was great, you know, a really different approach than was taken previously. And it's funny, uh, there's a, a big investment group called Susquehanna in the Philadelphia area, and they give everybody free food throughout the day. And everybody goes, oh my God, that's so great. But what they did was they did a study and said, that when they go out to lunch, I lose an hour. Do you know how much money an hour is? So if I have to spend 10 bucks for lunch to go make uh, 10,000, I'll spend the 10 bucks for lunch. Michael Bloomberg, when he was mayor of New York, took money out of his own pocket to put a very robust snack center into his main control room where all of his team was so that they wouldn't go out and get snacks. I mean, they were allowed to, but he just made it free and easy and for the exact same reason that you're talking about. And that was in city government. Yeah, and he was a fabulous mayor. I'm curious, did you find that 10 Xers are well-rounded and intellectually interested in a variety of things? And if so, what are they interested in? I, I ask this because I remember that when interviewing uh, long ago, interviewers would ask you what sport I like to play as a way to define a potential employee. So my experience with 10Xers is they are multidisciplinary because they are curious people and they like learning. So the people that I deal with, and I'm referring to 10Xers out of the technology world now, most of them speak at least a second language, if not multiple. Most of them play music. Most of them like some form of outdoor activity, a lot of sort of mountain biking, rock climbing, skiing kind of things. Um, and I don't want to make a blanket statement because there's, you know, some of them are really into wine or food or, but I, there's not a single one of these people who I have found that doesn't have really serious interests and some level of expertise outside of technology. Yeah, I live with a 10Xer and she was exactly what you described, intellectually interested in so many things and talented in so many different areas. Um, you write that a four-year degree has been debunked in favor of the new knowledge delivery system. Can you explain that? The knowledge, the knowledge delivery system. Um, I think what we're talking about here, just rem remind me of this question, I'm pulling up the question from you. I think what we're talking about here is that there's so much more data available as we're as we're going through our workplace experience, that things that used to be, you used to have to rely on gut. And as a, you know, yeah, I think you'll maybe appreciate this, but as an entrepreneur who started my journey, my entrepreneurial journey 27 years ago, I didn't know about using data to make all kinds of decisions. I knew like there were obvious places of how many records did this person sell? Should we, in this market, should we do more or less there? There were obvious things like that. Now we live in a world where we're measuring almost everything that we do. And that is allowing all of us to be able to give feedback to people in a way that allows them to improve their performance in ways that we never could have done. When I can go to an employee and I can say, hey, I noticed that between um, when you've pitched the client to a customer and when the contract gets sent out is really kind of slow. Let's look at how we speed up that part of the process and what are you getting stuck on? 
I'm giving that person feedback of that I never would have been able to give without having that measurement to be able to improve something very specific. And that's really what I mean about the data delivery systems that exist now. How important is it to master soft skills, which are the most important, and which are the most important soft skills to, to learn? Um, I think soft skills are sort of everything these days, as as I've as, as we talked about in the book, and, and, and I think we discussed a little earlier. If you took a, 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 the best software engineer in the world and took away every soft skill that they had, they would be fairly useless because they might be able to build great things, but they couldn't communicate what they were building, how they were building it, why they were building it. They couldn't have good conversations with you about how to build it or what the requirements were for it. You'd have really, really big problems. So, you know, when you think about the soft skills that are needed, it starts with communication, being able to accurately and succinctly reflect what it is you want and why you want it becomes crucial because isn't everything that we're doing some form of that? We're advocating for or against something. And the more, the more one is able to do that. And then I think you add in the EQ elements of this, which are working and learning. I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much money and time I've spent on reading about being a better manager or being a better human being or studying something like dialectical behavioral therapy or nonviolent communication, because we are dealing all the time with human beings in the workplace. And most of the problems arise from the interpersonal communication. There are limits to what we can do with technology, but we're, we're mostly getting tripped up when we're running a project with human problems, not technical problems. So that's where I think we have the most opportunity to improve ourselves. And it seems today that a lot of young people struggle with resiliency, uh, that they have a hard time coping with failure. Can resiliency be taught and how do you prepare people for failure? Because when I taught at Wharton, they made students take a class in this because there were suicides and attempted suicides every year. Resiliency is a huge problem. Um, I think we have a, some really major fundamental problems because of the way our education system works. And, and I don't wanna to go too far off on that tangent. Um, resiliency can be learned. It's a very simple thing to, to teach, which is just fail all the time. Just keep, like, keep trying things that are hard and keep failing and keep getting back up and trying again. And this is grit. I mean, this is, this is one of the qualities, by the way, that when we talk about what makes a 10X or this is it, like, and, and changing, to answer your question very specifically, changing the relationship to failure is probably the first step, which is what scientists do, which is why these people are 10Xers, because they know that failing isn't bad. Failing is just the next step in figuring out how to do it. And as soon as somebody is really understands that, I think most people in the STEM field are much more comfortable with failing than people in, in a sort of more on the humanity side of things, because it's, it's the process. We do a call every week with our team. It's called wins and learns. It used to be called wins and losses. It's, it, it, it's not a loss if you actually learn something. If you didn't learn anything from it, then it's a loss. I think the weight has to be taken off of them and that they feel like they're letting people down when they do fail. And then they, especially 10Xers, because you know Wharton is full of 10Xers and all these uh, Ivy League elite schools. And you don't see that same kind of thing. I went to West Virginia University and we weren't, that doesn't, wasn't coming up much, but these people have so much uh, pressure on themselves and so much pride to succeed that they put a lot of unnecessary pressure on themselves. 
Are organizations thinking about those things that you're dealing with about how to manage that? Um, the forward thinking ones certainly are. I'm, you know, I'm putting into the chat our company core values, which are um, not so unusual, but just the fact that a company thinks to have these. And it, it, as you'll see, one of the one of the core values here, the, the second one is owning our mistakes. We know mistakes happen. When we make mistakes, we address them and celebrate the risk-taking in doing so. We learn from mistakes and share these learns so no one else has to make the same mistake. So if you're in a culture where that is, your mistakes are celebrated and your mistakes are expected and your mistakes are understood and, and people you know, uh, correcting your mistakes are, are seeing them that way, I think you're much more likely to have a culture that creates resilient people than you are in a place where you're feeling admonished, you're, you think your job is, is threatened. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, mistakes don't cause you to get fired unless you're making the same mistake over and over and over again. It's one thing if you do something horrible, but especially at the beginning of a job, that's how you learn. Yeah, and I, I, I always hear great leaders say they kept people too long. And I tell them, I, that's what all the great leaders say is they kept people too long. But if you fire people too quickly, then people are afraid of making mistakes. And then you only attract the media, um, mediocre people who couldn't get a job with anybody else. But the really smart, successful ones want to know that if they do make a mistake uh, and they can learn from it, that they're not going to be penalized for it. Yeah, I, we have a new employee who was who was celebrating the fact that this was the first place she'd worked where she felt really comfortable to make suggestions and, and talk about ideas because she knew like whether they were good, bad, or otherwise, they'd be received as, you know, positive intent. How sad that is that uh, the, the organization she left, but good for you. When you're, when you're the boss, should you let employees get to know that real you and how much time should you spend socially with employees? You talk about this in the book and South Korea going out uh, and you didn't mention this, but I knew this and South Korea going out and drinking and dining is a big important thing in their culture. So what's your thoughts on this? So I think my, th my thoughts on this have changed a little bit. Some of this has to do with culture. We're a relatively small organization and I absolutely want to know my employees. I want them to know me, to know my family, to know about my life and my interests. Um, I don't believe that the, the hard and fast work lifelines need to be there except for people who want them. I wouldn't impose on anyone to share anything that they don't wanna share. But I feel like I want, I, I just, I want that. And as a result of that, and as a result of switching to mostly remote work, we've created a culture calendar um, recently. And what we're doing is we're getting our team together in person three times a year um, in one place where we can get together for about three days and do a bunch of bonding and drinking and eating and hanging out and doing work together but coming together because we used to come together every day to some degree or four or five days a week. Now that's happening less. And this is a way for us to create connections, create connectivity, feel like a team, create the culture that we want and still give people the freedom and the flexibility. So I think that hopefully addressed that question. Yeah, yeah, it did. You write about the importance of the creative mind, but I think a lot of companies say they want it, but they're scared to bring it in. What's your take on this? Um, 
it's interesting because we could substitute the word diverse here for creative. And I think it's a similar question. Um, I think many companies and people are paying lip service to this idea of wanting creative people and wanting diverse ideas in the room. I think that for many of them, that's really a checking the box thing of the moment. I think when one really understands the value of having those diverse ideas and those divergent thinkers around, you start to take a different approach to it. Um, and you know, we talk about an example in the book about the Chevy Nova, I love this story, that when they released and named that car, my presumption is there was not a single Spanish speaker in the room right? because the car, the name of the car means doesn't go in Spanish. Yeah. And, you know, when they were making that car, presumably they were planning to release it globally. Maybe they, maybe they said we like the name anyway, and I don't know the backstory and they, they, they knew about this, but my guess is they didn't have someone in the room who was like, ah, wait a minute, let's think about this. That's why you want to have different ideas in the room. And that's not, that's a, that's a language thing, but there's, you know, my partner and I are both in our fifties. Our team is, you know, at the height, mid thirties, mostly, mostly twenties. And we constantly have to check ourselves with them from a generational perspective. Um, and I think that you, you just want to have the more different ideas you have in the room, the better the, the creative output is going to be, the, the more you'll get an outside the box idea. And you just have to be comfortable with an environment where everybody can have ideas and they're not all usable and that's okay. You, you talked earlier about the sabotage impulse, which I'd like you to define for everybody. And how do you guard against that? So the sabotage impulse is tricky because I don't think it's something you can, you can train out of somebody. This is the guarding against this is really trying to recognize it before it's in, in your midst. And if you, if you've already got it in your midst, then it's excising it fairly quickly. And as, as we talked about, this is the person who's not really willing to take responsibility for anything they do because they think that either they're great or they think that they're not responsible for anything that goes wrong. And it means sort of by definition, if you're not responsible for anything going wrong, you can't be responsible for improving things. And as a result, those are people that become very hard to have on your team. Plus, because they're not taking responsibility for things, they're often shifting blame to others, which makes it really hard to have them around. So I, I think that the, the most important thing to do um, and that we do and is really dig into in the interview process, tell me about a time you made a mistake and how you handled it. And you sort of get two versions of the answer. You get the time where somebody actually made a mistake and they're owning it and they're telling you about how bad it was and how, how they addressed it. And then you also get the times where they tell you about a mistake that was made and then they spend the rest of the time explaining how it wasn't really their fault. That is the best way for me to be able to parse those, those two people out. You know, I, it made me think here in all the organizations I ran, I used to make a list of where all the ideas come from so people could see that we actually take other people's ideas and implement them. But I never thought of making a list of all the mistakes and what we learned from them and that the people are still there, you know, to reassure people that they can make mistakes. Yeah. I mean, we do that live on, on a call all together on video with, you know, uh, this week I learned that I should not say this to a customer because it got a bad reaction, like whatever, whatever it is. And we, you know, it's good. It's good. I'd rather have us share it and, and have, you know, somebody learn from somebody else than making the same mistake again. 
So uh, this is the last question. What's your last piece of advice for hiring, nurturing, and retaining uh, talent? Think about them as human beings. Build that empathy muscle. Really, really, really build compassion. Really look at what's going on in their life. This doesn't mean that they get to have endless excuses. This is not about not holding people accountable. But there's a difference between somebody who's going through a divorce for some period of time and knowing about it, if they're willing to share that, and being supportive and helpful versus this guy was doing his, he was, she was doing better two months ago. Ah, we got to, you know, we got to put them on a performance improvement plan. (laughs) Things, things, things like that, where you're just not dealing with reality. Like reality is you've got somebody on your team who hopefully you actually care a little bit about, even if you don't like them just because they're another human being, hopefully there's a little bit of care. And then there's, then there's like, what do they need to get through this? So if, if you conclude fairly quickly, oh, it's a divorce. I don't want to fire them over this. Then it's, how do I support them? And how do I get what I need out of them and help them? That's a really hard thing to do. If you're somebody who wants to just, you know, be like, go do the work and, and get out of my way and get this done. It's really easy thing to do if you actually care about other human beings, or at least can pretend like you do. Well, I mean, you always hear the people who are happiest in their organizations where people actually do uh, care about them, the leaders. I think that's what Tim Cook has going for him at Apple. And what made Steve Jobs famous was Tim Cook's ability to manage people or and Steve Wozniak before him. I mean, as right. smart as um as steve jobs was we never would have heard of him if you let him manage it it's so true yeah that's the difference well i want to thank you so much for taking the time it's a great book i hope people are going to get this book and um i'm going to need to speak to you further about my new venture in the metaverse because i think there's some collaboration here i'd love to hear about it and i really enjoyed being here and enjoyed chatting with you so i hope to do it again sometime in the future There won't be a program next uh, weekend because it's July 4th weekend and uh, reading 52 books a year, it's exhausting. So I'm also taking some time off this uh, coming week. So I hope everybody has a great July 4th and a safe one. And we'll look forward to seeing you the following week. Bye, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.